What I need you to know is that the Jews and the Gentiles could not have been more different. They could not have been any more different than they were. That The Gentile did not like the Jew, and the Jew did not like the Gentile. The Jew did not live like the Gentile, and the Gentile did not live like the Jew. The Gentile did not believe the same as the Jew, and the Jew did not believe the same as the Gentile, and so on. They did not speak the same. They did not eat the same. They did not worship the same God. They lived separately. There were cultural barriers. There were spiritual barriers and physical barriers. So over the next three weeks, what I'd like to do, if you'll keep showing up and allow me to do it, is work through sort of a three a three-part sermon series titled, We Are One in Christ. We Are One in Jesus Christ. And so, yes, it's within the same book we've been working through, um, but as I began to type, so a little bit about me, I, I type out every word that I say. I have to manuscript it because if I have any freedom, I'll say something that doesn't make sense. So I have to, I stick to the notes that I have typed out, and uh, usually I preach about 2,800 words. 2,800 words is about, I mean, I think it's 35 minutes, but you guys know it's like 45. So... Um, I'm always tricking myself into thinking I'm preaching less than I am. So it, was, it came about Tuesday or Wednesday, and I realized when I looked down at my computer, I had 6,000 words. You will not receive all 6,000 words today. And what I realized was that there is so much that could be explained, and there is so much that we could think about once we understand what Paul is telling the church in Ephesus that would help us in our day-to-day. Um, so over the next three weeks, I'm going to do a lot of what the Bible... Uh, what we call exegesis, so I want to explain what the Bible says. That is my job. I, I do not want to give you my opinions, but I'd also like to help explain culture as it is today, and I think we'll see that um, some of the divisions that the church experienced in these 11 verses could also help us think differently about the divisions that we experience in our world. Now, they are not the same. Paul was talking to two specific people groups for a specific reason, but I would like to do over the next few weeks is help us understand what's going on around us in light of the instruction that Paul gave to this church. So I want, I, want to, I want us to understand at a deeper level than we do today that the sin of mankind has caused a deep separation between people groups. Specifically, it's labeled Jew and Gentile here. The sinful nature of the human heart will always divide, it will always separate, and it will always default to hate. Hate anyone who is not like it. Now, as we cover these 11 verses or 12 verses, um, and most importantly, we need to understand what Paul is writing them and why he is writing them, and, and we need to understand what the original audience was supposed to hear. That's important for us. But then, if you'll allow me to, I'd like to bring in some things from the culture of what we're actually taught to think about the division within the church. I want us to be aware of the sin that divides us and the Savior who unifies us as it relates to our church, maybe our families, the community, and the nation as a whole. It is a routine part of mankind, of sin, to build barriers. It's a routine. I mean, barriers that divide people into people groups based on skin color, belief system, cultural practices. We will think of anything and everything to create barriers in between people. For example, in the time of the New Testament, which we were reading from today, there was a, a barrier between those who were free and those who were not free. They were slaves. There's a lot about this barrier between the free men and the slaves in the New Testament. Those who were slaves looked at their slave masters with anger and resentment. And those who were free looked down upon the slaves as less than or inferior. There's an example of this in the New Testament where 
oh, um, no, there were, there's another example of, of women, how women were treated in the New Testament. For the most part, women were looked down as inferior persons. Husbands often treated their wives the same as a household slave. Now, in the context of the New Testament, in this letter, we are introduced to this existing barrier between the Jew and the Gentile. The more you read the Bible, the more you will read about this Jew-Gentile problem. It's there. It exists. The Jews believed the Gentiles were created to fuel the fires of hell. It was not lawful for a Jew to assist a Gentile woman during childbearing because that assistance would bring another heathen into the world. Likewise, the, likewise, the Gentiles had their own hatred, held their own hatred of the Jew. This collision between Jew and Gentile was continual. According to the Jews, the Gentiles were dogs. According to the Gentiles, the Jews were enemies of the entire human race. The Greeks, who were considered Gentiles, were so proud of their culture and self-proclaimed racial superiority, they considered everyone else to be a barbarian. They would say the Greek language was considered to be the language of the gods, lowercase g. A man named Cicero said, as the Greeks always say, all of mankind is divided into two classes, Greeks and barbarians. It's within the context, in this context specifically of Ephesians chapter 2, that we must understand what Paul is writing. Those who had have received this letter were Gentiles and Jewish people who have become Christians together. Enemies were now worshiping in the same building. Lifelong enemies were now worshiping the same God. Lifelong enemies were now in the same connect group. They were in the same worship service. They were serving coffee together and parking cars and teaching kids downstairs together. There was a barrier that existed between these two people groups. Paul is writing to a group of people who were raised to hate one another. But now, they're worshiping together. Paul starts by explaining the situation. He says, verse 12, Remember that you at one time were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers of the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. The history of God's work in this world goes like this. God creates... God created all things. We, mankind, rebels. God chooses a people in order to bring forth a savior for those people, from those people, and his name is Jesus. And Jesus makes it possible for people to be reunited with God once again. Uh, that's a really condensed version, okay? That, that's, that's the story of humanity. So here's the big idea. Jesus makes it possible to move from disunity to unity. You're buying coffee. Jesus makes it possible to move from disunity to unity. God creates, man rebels. God sends someone from a people whom he would choose to save the rebellious. Now, those who were called the Jews, okay, let me, let me explain the Jews. I'll explain both sides of the people groups here. The Jews, long story short, God spoke to a man named Abram, he later named him Abraham, and told them that he would be the father of a great nation. Fast forward in time, and eventually we see the formation of the 12 tribes within the nation of Israel. This nation is given God's laws, his moral law, his ceremonial law, his civil laws. The nation of Israel is chosen by God so they would know who God is. 
They are chosen by God, so the glory of God would be displayed through them to the world around them. The nation of Israel was not large, it was not wealthy, and it was not wise. They were not chosen because they were better than anyone else. God actually has explained this to them over and over again. God said, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. So not only were the Jews not wise or wealthy or significant, they were small in number. They were a small, insignificant nation, yet God chose them to, bring re- to reveal his character, to reveal his glory, to reveal his power, and ultimately to reveal the Savior of mankind, Jesus Christ. Israel was supposed to be a nation who would reveal the knowledge of God to the entire world. In fact, right now, if you're here and if you're a Christian, that's actually probably the main blessing you have received from your salvation. Not only will we worship God forever in eternity and we will never taste the sting of death, your biggest blessing is that you have the knowledge of God. You know who he is and he knows you. Israel was supposed to be a nation who would reveal the knowledge of God to the entire world around them. Unfortunately, however, Israel never fulfilled this calling. And we see the evidence in their failure in their relationship with their neighbors, the Gentiles. An ancient rabbi documents a story when a Gentile woman came before a Jewish holy man. He was, he was, his name was Eleazar, Rabbi Eleazar. And she confessed to him that she was a sinner. She knew it. I, I'm a sinner. And she, she wanted to become righteous. She desired to be forgiven. She wanted to be accepted into the Jewish family because she heard that the Jews were close to God and that the Jews knew of God. The rabbi responded, you cannot come near. And then he shut the door in her face. Israel was blessed to know God, but failed to make him known among the nations. We know the mission of God. We find this in Mark chapter 6. It says, go and preach the gospel to all of creation. That's God's mission, that everyone would hear the good news of his love and his grace and his mercy found in Jesus Christ. Again, in Matthew 28, we're told to make disciples of all nations. Create disciples, followers of Jesus Christ from all people around the world. Again, in the book of Acts, chapter one, verse eight, to be his witnesses. We're called to be God's witnesses both in Jerusalem and then Judea and then Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. We're supposed to be his witnesses in our little community, in our broader community and all over the world. It's not as if the Jews were confused about this calling, this calling to go into the world and introduce God to all the nations and all the tribes and all the tongues. It's always been a part of God's plan to extend his love, to extend his grace, and to extend his forgiveness and mercy to every single person on this earth. So the failure then, the failure wasn't that the Jews didn't have enough resources or they didn't have the necessary information. God had made them distinct from all his people. He had given him his law. God desired for the world to notice the Israelites, which is why we read about so many laws and restrictions. God wanted to see his people. He he wanted to see how the Jews did not act like other nations. He chose them. He set them apart so they would not mix with other people groups. 
He gave them a strict diet, narrow clothing options, which is a bummer, rigid marriage and ceremonial laws, all so they would not fit in with anybody else, so God's character would be revealed to the world. Here's where they failed. All of these things mentioned were for their benefit and for the world's benefit. But Israel twisted these laws and pretty much perverted them into a source of national pride. Instead of revealing who God was, they only elevated themselves to a position thinking themselves better than others. This is pride. Pride is the foundation of all of our sin. There are so many examples of the Bible, of this in the Bible. There's, there's a man named Jonah. You may have heard his story. He was told to travel to a far-off land and tell people of Nineveh, Gentile nation, about God's forgiveness and God's mercy. But instead, he runs the opposite direction. He wants nothing to do with it. Refusing to go to the Gentiles, he, he runs the other way. And after all it's said and done, fast forward to the end of the story, he ends up obeying God. God brings him under submission. He goes and preaches to this huge nation of people worshiping false gods. In fact, they turn from their false gods and they worship the one true God. It's actually a really amazing story of God rescuing more people. Even after he obeys, even after he preaches and goes to seek these people and share with them God's forgiveness, Jonah is not pleased. He is not happy about it. Here's how he responds. It's recorded in the book of Jonah, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste. That's why I ran the other way. For I knew that you are gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and rel relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life for me, for it's better for me to die than to live. You, want to, you know why he wrote those words? Because God saved a whole nation of Gentiles. He'd rather those people die, and he was so upset that God had used him to save people from his judgment. Jonah wanted the Gentiles to be judged, not forgiven. And this is the attitude continues through the spread of the early church. Jesus preached one gospel. The apostles were given one message. Throughout the book of Acts, we read about Jews who wanted the Gentiles to first become Jews and then become Christians. It was this really confusing thing. It was a mess. It was wrong. But don't worry, it got fixed. If it hadn't got fixed, we would not look the way we look today. We'd be looking much different. But I want us to see and understand the animosity between these two people groups. I want us to understand how much they hated one another, how deep this hatred was. I also want us to realize that one of these groups had a relationship with God and the other had not. We've touched on the nation of Israel and how God has chosen them as his people, but the Gentiles, on the other hand, were not chosen by God. They were not given the law of God. Paul says in verse 12, he's talking to Gentiles. In, in Ephesus, it's a city. He says, remember that you at one time were separated from Christ. You were separated from the Messiah. You were separated from the Savior, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants. That's the promises. They were strangers to all the promises of God. And this resulted in having no hope, no hope and without God in the world. So the Gentile Christians, that's, that's who they once were. 
These Gentiles were without hope and without God their entire life. They were alienated. They were set apart, not in a good way, in a bad way. They were separated. They were socially alienated in the way that they lived. Paul uses the example of the circumcision, the verse previous. So they were physically alienated. They were spiritually alienated because they were without God. They were spiritually alienated because they were not with Christ. These Gentiles may have been spiritual. They may have had their own gods, their own religions, but they had no idea and they had no relationship of a Savior. They had no idea who Jesus was. These Gentiles were alienated from the commonwealth, the nation of Israel. We, we've talked about this a bit. They did not follow God's civil laws. They didn't follow those ceremonial laws. They didn't follow the Jewish spiritual laws. They were strangers to the promises of God. They had no idea who God was or what he was capable of doing. They had no idea of how to worship the one true living God. They never went to church. They never went to church and they were never invited by Christians who did. All of this alienation culminates in what Paul says. They had no hope. They were without God in this world. Man, this sounds like some of us, doesn't it? This is probably your story. This is certainly my story. Actually, this is us, not the show, but the church. I hope you see what Paul is doing. He's reminding them of their past. Paul is reminding these Gentile Christians of who they were because he's hoping that they will see the glory of their new life in Christ. They were without God. They were without the hope of a Savior or salvation or freedom from their sin, or without the hope of a, a life after death. They were outside every promise God has ever given to his people. But now they are with God. But now they are with God. But now they have hope because they know the Savior. Now they live within those promises given to Israel. Remembering where God has brought us from or what God has brought us out of is a vital part of the Christian walk. Remembering where God has brought you out of, what God has saved you from, is such a vital part of your relationship with Jesus because how else can we appreciate what Jesus has done for us if we've never remembered what he has brought us out of? I know it's hard sometimes. We really don't want to think about the past. Grace allows us to forget that sometimes, doesn't it? It's actually good when we forget all the things we used to do. We enjoy that. But there are some things we know to be true about ourselves. We must remember what God has saved us from. We must remember what God has saved us from. Because how can we appreciate what Jesus has done for us if we've never remembered where we came from? We never remembered who we once were. How can we tell others about God's great grace if we turned a blind eye to who we once were when we first experienced that great grace? This is the core of the Christian message. All who were once far off, all who once lived without God in the world and without hope in their life have now been brought close. By the blood of Jesus Christ, we are now brought near to God. We have been adopted into his family. We're the church. Paul is reminding these once far off Gentiles they are one with God they are one with their Christian brothers and sisters who happen to be Jewish. They are Christians who happen to also be Jewish. 
want to explain these verses about the unity in Christ. And first, I want to remind us as the church, the family of God, the body of Jesus Christ, we are now one. We are one. We are unified. One new man, Paul says. That will be next week. Explain that a little bit more. God has done all of this to create one new mankind, one new race, one new people group who are unified in all things. Every sinner has a past. However, no matter where you come from or what type of life you live before you met Jesus Christ, you are now all saints equally and fully. If we remember this truth and we take this truth and begin to think of how much of an impact this unity or oneness in Jesus Christ can have in a world full of people who are alienated from God, I hope it allows us to begin to contrast with how the world tells us to be unified with people and with God. Unity only comes through the person of Jesus Christ. And unity should be found most prevalent within the church. However, the wisdom of the world proves to be foolishness, foolishness to God. So many things the world is telling us. Society tells us definitions were given, laws to live by, and all this is done thinking to create a better temporary world with unified people. Friends, the church holds the key to unity. It's the person of Jesus Christ. We are one. If you are a Christian, you are one with God. If you are, you are one with the Christian sitting next to you, whether you actually know them today or not, they are your brother, they are your sister. You have the same heavenly father. You worship the same savior. You are one with the Christian who lives on the other side of the globe, who you never met, and who you may one day meet in the future in heaven. You are one. We are unified. There's nothing left to divide over. There's nothing left to separate over. We give that no ground here in the church. All those who were once far off have been equally united with Jesus Christ. That's Paul's reminder to the Ephesian Gentiles. Here's what I'm getting at. This isn't the necessarily, like, what I'm about to now explain a little bit is not exactly what Paul had in mind, you know, in mind for these Gentile Ephesians to think about. But I do think that the unity in Christ, the oneness in the church, does affect us in the world we live in today. If the church does not step into the mess that is around us, the world will continue to divide and separate. If the church is not bold with the message of unity in Christ, the world will continue to divide and separate over just about anything they can think of. The current ethnic Racial divisions we encounter today will continue. And they will only grow worse. Because in thinking themselves wise, the people of the world have become fools. Chasing the end result that they would never find. They're never going to grasp it. Like many of you, I've heard and I have seen our nation argue over so many things related to divisions and peoples. I have watched as our nation has argued over, divided over, just about everything. I've watched as our society begins to speak very mean to one another. I guess that's the simplest way I could put it. They're just mean. I've watched and you've watched how people begin to treat one another. 
Like many of you, I try to keep up to date with the major news stories or breaking news stories within our city, within our nation, within our world. In fact, I, I have a Facebook account. I have an Instagram account. I have an iPhone. So therefore, if I set up my notifications just right, I can receive just about any update what's going around the world at any given time. I can receive it all. I can hear it all. I can read about all of it. Which means me, I, just like you, we're aware of the divisions. We are aware of what probably is plaguing our nation the most at the moment. Black from white. White from brown. Brown from black. I mean, you could interchange those about 10 times. Citizens from non-citizens. Legal immigrants from illegal immigrants. On and on and on and on we could go. Christian from non-Christian. It's easy to see how many black Americans feel as though this country hates them. It's easy to see that. I, I understand this line of reasoning. It goes back to the New World slave trade. It's not hard to understand. We are aware of our history. I understand many black Americans think this country is once again oppressing them. I understand many people in the black community think this country has never stopped oppressing them. I have listened and I have heard black Americans express their concern about systematic racism. I am also equally aware that many white Americans think black Americans are overreacting. It's also easy to see many white Americans think as though they cannot talk about ethnic divide in this country because they are white. Actually, I've been quite nervous about this. There are some who would think that if I even bring this up, I have no place and nothing actually matters what I'm about to say. I'm a part of the majority because the white people are part of the majority. I'm aware that many white males in positions of authority and of power or influence feel as though they are targeted because they are white because they hold a position of authority. I am also aware those who are not white would say this is an absurd overreaction. See how this goes? I am aware that many here have an opinion about the immigration policies of our nation. Many opinions. I am aware that many who are here today may have been deeply affected or know someone who has been deeply affected by our nation's immigration policies. I also know all of us would probably disagree about what to do next to serve people who would like to live in this nation. And I know, and I'm fully aware, of the fact that I am talking about these two, th those are only two things, these two things make some of you extremely uncomfortable. Because I was shaking while I was typing, but I know some of you, this is uncomfortable. For others, I acknowledge these topics cause your blood to boil. This, actually, these topics make you mad right away. For others, you actually don't know what to think. I also understand that many people have no idea how to process the constant flow of information. Is it true? Is it not? Should I react? Should I not? Should I say something? Should I not? And even if you do attempt to engage in conversation or debate about what I have just mentioned about any of those topics, I also am aware that you will experience one of two outcomes. Number one, people will get extremely angry with you, no matter the color of your skin. So angry they could not even hold an adult conversation without continually freaking out on you. Or two, people won't even allow you to share your thought. You will not be afforded the freedom or the grace to openly discuss what you think to be the fix. 
Church, to be honest, I have yet to witness two people who disagree hold a meaningful and respectful conversation about anything I've just mentioned. I have yet to see it. Hopefully you have. Maybe you have had those circumstances. I have not. And I totally understand why. I get it. Here's why. It's because we, the church, I'm speaking to us now, and the world, we have been trained to speak or think about matters in the completely wrong way. We are getting nowhere, and it's clear we are getting nowhere. Yes, the church has done a poor job at engaging this conflict. The church in the past has done a horrible job at promoting this conflict, at being part of the problem. Church is not excused from any of this. The church has done a poor job because they have abandoned the language of Scripture. Church has done a poor job because although they love their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, they have not consistently loved their own neighbor as their self, which is the second and greatest commandment of all time. We've been caught up in following the world. We have been consumed with its knowledge and we have relied on its promises. All because we have forgot what we were saved from. All because we forgot we were all once far off. The world will always fail at their attempt to unify people. You must know this. It will always fail. This is why the Jews and the Gentiles would never, ever, ever have made it into the one church. Jews and the Gentiles would never have become brothers and sisters side by side worshiping God apart from their faith and their belief in the Savior Jesus Christ. That was it. Ephesus was not built on the thinking of the world and how to unify different people groups who hate each other. That's not what brought them together. What brought them together was the Savior. What brought them together was the spirit, the bond of peace. And we bring us to a close. Shortly. <laughs> I write that in there, so I don't know even know why I say it anymore. But we're going to spend some time over this over the next two weeks. Think of this as an introduction because we have quite a few more verses to go. We have some more culture to understand. The world, the government, the organizations, or any other man-made system started by, powered by, influenced by imperfect and sinful people will always fail at solving the problems we most desperately want solved. The world, meaning the current system of knowledge, the prince, the power of the air, the general consensus of how people live. The government, the organizations, or any other man-slash-woman-made systems. I use man like mankind. That's another division we could talk about. Man-made systems started by, powered by, influenced by, imperfect and sinful people will always fail. And in fact, always make it worse at unifying or solving the problems we most desperately want solved. Church, we must remember this. However, however, there's always good news when it comes to the Bible. Not a whole lot of good news outside of the Bible, I can tell you that. However, there is one man who showed up to do exactly what we have been failing to do in the world over and over and over and over again. He is the unifier. He is the one who can establish peace. 
there was a man named Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself to becoming obedient to the point of death, yes, even death on a cross. Because of this, therefore, God has exalted him, has highly exalted him, and given him the name that is above every name. So that, at the name of Jesus Christ, at the name of Jesus, not the name of government, not at the name of any other organization, not at the name of any amazing political leader who will be the great unifier. What does it say, church? At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And what will we do as we bow? We will confess that he is the Lord, all to the glory of God the Father. This is the one who will bring us peace. We divide. Jesus unifies. Only Jesus can unify us. Because he's the only one who has atoned for, who has paid for, who has died for my sin, and who has died for yours. It's the death of Jesus which makes it possible to pursue unity. I mean, without him, why are we even trying? It's just my opinion over yours. It's just their opinion over hers or his. What's the point? If I go to pursue unity, I'm going to bring my sin into the mess. Does that make sense? And then I'm going to tell you why your sin is worse than mine. So I win. Only Jesus can unify us because he is the only one who could pay for all the sin of disunity and division and barrier building and all the ethnic nonsense we experience. Because that is sinful, to, create, to treat an image bearer of God any less than yourself. No matter where they come from or what they look like or how they speak or how they eat or how they dress, it is sinful. It is evil. Only Christ can unify us because he is the only one who has atoned for, who has paid for, who has died for my sin and for yours. The death of Jesus Christ is what makes it possible to even pursue unity. Unity within the church first, which is what Paul is getting at. I told you, it's a, I did a little, kind of a sidestep there. That's not Paul's ultimate message to have unity within people groups around the world. I do think it helps us think about these things differently as we continue over the next few weeks. But first, Christ makes it possible to have unity within the church. People who were now apart from the promises of God are now in the promises of God, and they should be one. And mention what I said earlier. They are not Jewish Christians or Gentile Christians. They are Christians who happen to be Jewish or from a Gentile nation. Can I tell you in the coming weeks, you may be offended because I will tell you the way you look, the way you speak, although it is important and it is who God desired you to be is not your first identity. Christ is your first identity. It's a big challenge to us. He is the only God who has given the name above all other names. He is the only one who will receive honor and glory and praise for all eternity. He is the only one who will gather people from all tribes and tongues and nations, and he will gather them from all these nations. And we, the church, we will bow at his feet and worship him for all eternity. That's unity. That's where unity is found. 
Friends, it's found within these walls this morning. It's found within the church. Two things to think about as we leave. Now I'm really bringing to a close. First, Jesus is the one who makes it possible for people who are far from God to be brought near to him. If you have showed up this morning and you know, like you know when you know when you know, that kind of knowing, like you just know you are far from God, let me tell you, God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, and he is the one who breaks down the barrier between God and you. Jesus Christ is the one who has broken down the barrier between you and him. He makes it possible to you for you to know him, to have the knowledge of him, to live within his promises, and to be saved from his judgment. We're sinners, and Jesus is our Savior. Amen? If that's you, I need you to consider how far you are from God and whether or not you'd like to be brought near. Because that's why we exist here in this place, to tell people how to be brought near to God. Number two, we'll end with this. Jesus is the only one who makes it possible for people to live in unity. Because he has given us the church where unity should reign supreme and where the message of unity should find its truest form, its best example, its strongest message. I said a couple weeks ago, there is no one else coming. There's no plan B. You know what God's plan A is for this world? It's us. It's the church. So this week, if you have an opinion about something, I would ask you to just hold it for a minute. It's not bad to share your opinions. I think it's great. I have a lot of them. My wife has more. <laughs> you should hear her. Just joke. <laughs> I had to lighten it up a little bit. Um, but I would ask, I would ask you to consider whether you're going about it the right way, which we as the church should always do, right? Every, every time you open the Bible, I think, oh, I wasn't doing that the way God wanted me to do it. This is a natural part of your walk with Christ. Have I been doing it the right way? Have I been thinking about it in the right way? Have I been promoting the sinful thing or the righteous thing? What have I been doing? So let me pray for us. And I w- would like you to return. And uh, we're going to probably spend two, I, did get, I didn't get through a lot of words. We're probably going to spend two or three more weeks specifically discussing unity within the church and how the church is the message of unity to the broader world. Amen? Let's pray.